All right, Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. It's like part 10, I think, in Matthew 24. I think it's part 10. I, I could look really quick. I could tell you in just a second. It is part 10. So, there we're, we could obviously do a lot of review, but I'm not. Um, Matthew 24, I'll just remind you of this, all right? Instead of you asking you, I'll just remind you. There are some key sections in this chapter <laughs> that we have to seek to understand if we're going to make any sense of the entire chapter. I've covered these now. I don't know how many times, but I'm not going to ask you if you remember. <coughs> okay? I knew I was going to need a bottle of water. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. The re reason this is key, the reason this is an important section is because this sets up really the whole setting. It sets up really the whole reason for the whole, the whole all of, well, I, I, you could almost argue for the entire Olivet Discourse because they come out of the temple. They're like, hey, do you see these buildings? Jesus gives a prediction that the building's going to come completely down. And then from there, he launches into really his answer, when are these things are going to happen, and all the questions that they have. So Matthew 24, 1 through 4, is the really sets up the entire setting, the context, everything. So you cannot forget that those four verses. Then Matthew 24, verse 14. Matthew 24, verse 14. This one is key for the following reason. I'll read it first. And this, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The reason this one is so important is because if you look at verses 4 to 13, I think it could be easily argued that all of those so-called signs for when these things are going to occur, that all of those could probably find their fulfillment when? Before 70 A.D. Before 70 A.D., Verse 14 is where people start going, I don't know if that was fulfilled. And let me tell you, if you go to the commentaries, you find almost no, you find lots of disagreement on when has this been fulfilled, when it was fulfilled. And so verse 14 is critical. Now, here's the reason. If we can say that everything before verse 14 was fulfilled before 70 A.D., then verse 14 would be the transitioning verse that then everything from 14 after points to something other than 70 AD. Does that make sense? That's why verse 14 is significant. Verse 15 is the next verse. Why is verse 15 significant? Right, so in other words... If 14 isn't the transition, could 15 be the transition where we read this? When, you, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. In other words, if we can find a way to get 14 fulfilled before 70 AD, and the commentators offer a lot of possible ways of making that occur, then fifth, would 15 be the transition? Now, what would be the question? Is it possible that 15 has been fulfilled? Then the transition would have to be found where? Somewhere after verse 15. 
Okay, so verse 14 and 15 are possible transition verses. What's the next key one? 34. Okay, good. All right. What's significant about this one? Let me read it. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. All right, well, that's, that's, a, that's a problem, right? Because if you look at everything that comes before that verse, many of those people would clearly point to the second coming. Well, if it points to the second coming, well, then these things have to be fulfilled. That can't be that generation. That has to be a different generation. And then, then what they say is, well, this generation is the generation who sees these things being fulfilled. And do you go all the way back to verse 4? Or do you stop somewhere, like, now you see where it becomes a problem, right? Does that make sense? All right, and then 36. What's significant about verse 36? Yes, but, uh, but uh, of that day, is it starting in verse 36 and following, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, uh, not, uh, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 36 and following, the reason this is a key section is, one, everyone assumes that when it speaks of the days of Noah, that it's assuming of the wickedness of the days of Noah, so the same level of wickedness will be present before whatever happens. But I don't believe that that, that, that is any way, shape, or form referring to the wickedness of the days of Noah. It specifically tells us what it's referring to. What is it referring to? They don't know when, but not just that. Read the next verse. And what does it say after? They were eating and drinking. In other words, that they were completely oblivious and disregarding and just living life normally. They weren't worried about any coming destruction. They weren't worried about a flood. They weren't worried about judgment. They weren't worried about God. They weren't worried about anything. All right? That's what it's referring to. All right. Now, why is this important? Well, if you, if you connect it to the wickedness of the days of Noah, then you have to go back between 33 and 70 AD and say, did the world get as bad as it was in the days of Noah? Well, clearly, that, that would pro- that's, that's not what the text is talking about. Are, were the people oblivious? Now, that is what we would have to refer to, right? Okay, th- does that make sense? All right. Then it talks about there's two and one is taken away. This is a key section because a lot of people think the one taken away is the one who's delivered. But in the context, the ones taken away are likened unto whom? The ones who were taken away in the days of Noah are the ones who were taken away by the flood, seeming to be the ones who were drowned. So the ones taken away here are not the ones taken away in some kind of rapture or delivered, but be the, be the ones taken away in judgment. That, so that, that radically, these are key sections because they so radically challenge the way this text is constantly handled. And remember, the way we handle this text, what do we not care, what, what's the one thing we don't care about doing with this text? We don't care about which team likes it or doesn't like it. What are we worried about? Just trying to figure out what it says. I don't care if it fits your team, my team. I I hate that whole thing. Well, if you do that, then you have to be a dispensationalist. If you do that, 
I don't, you, you come up with the labels you want to put on someone. What does the text say? Does that make sense? And the text clearly goes against so much of what people do with it, which is just, if you think about it, it's kind of startling, right? That so many Christians have the exact same text, but come to such dramatically different conclusions. It's not only troubling, it's really frustrating, and I wish it wasn't that case, but trust me, it's not a Bible thing. It's not a Bible thing. I spent all of Monday and all of Tuesday as a juror in a trial. Okay, we listened to all the testimony. We listened to it all. We heard the same witnesses. We looked at the same pictures. We were given the same evidence. We walk into the jury room to start deliberation And there were times I was confused if we were all in the same trial together. I was like, are we sure we were, 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 were did you come from a different courtroom? Because I thought, like, what, what did you hear? And their perception was, at one point, I had to request, can we get the testimony since clearly nobody was listening? Because this was, and they kept telling me, that's, that's not what was said. I'm like, that's what was said. So we had to go back into the courtroom. The court reporter had to read it. I told you I was listening. I don't know what you were doing. Okay, pay attention, please. But it, sometimes I feel like that in preaching. Was anybody listening? It's just insane how you can be given the exact same thing. And it's just like, what? What? How, how does... I don't understand. You, you, can bring, you can bring everyone a, a novel, have everyone read the novel, and they start talking about it, and you'd be like, did you read the same book? That, that is frustrating, right? Because, it, I mean, and, and, and for most things, people don't care. Well, I don't care if we don't agree on the song. I don't care if we agree on the movie. I don't care if we agree. But the thing is, if we can't agree on anything, do you see the problems that's going to arise for a God giving us a revelation in written form? If he's given it in written form, we have to be able to figure it out. And we can't, there's almost nothing in Matthew 24 that anyone agrees upon. I mean, we, we try to focus on 70 AD, and most people just don't ignore it. They may even say, well, some of it has to do with 70 AD, but they don't even bother to figure out which part, and they pretty much apply everything to where? The future. And you're like, how can you do that? How? And they're looking at you like, why are you trying to connect it to 70 AD? Don't you believe Jesus is coming back? It's like, well, it's not about what I believe. It's about what does the text say? That's what I had to keep saying in the jury. In, in jury. It's not about what we feel. It's about what the law requires, okay? I don't care about any of your feelings, okay? What does the law tell us to do? Okay, right? Well, that's the way, it, 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 it's not about, that's how it's supposed to be. Okay, so that, that's the way it has to be here. Does it make sense? And it's just, it's just frustrating that just in those sections, you get a hundred Christians together. I don't know if there would be, a, and that's just those sections. We still got all of 24 and all of 25, Right? That, 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 that's just so disheartening. So what do we do? So th- those are the key sections. What have we done so far? 
I don't want you to go back through everything that we've done. We did a little bit of a history lesson, yes? Okay, I'm not going to ask you to remember the names or the dates, but we went through a number of individuals looking at a, different, a lot of different perspectives, and we ended up coming to an individual by the name of James Stuart Russell, yes? And we're using James Stuart Russell as really, we're using his, his form of preterism, I guess that's a good way of putting it, uh, to try to see how a preterist would interpret Matthew 24. And simply put, how does a preterist approach the Olivet Discourse? All been fulfilled, and all been fulfilled where? 70 AD, right? Prior, leading up to 70 AD and 70 AD. Everything. Now, we could just immediately do what? Be dismissive and say, well, we don't like the preterist view because that doesn't fit our view. So we'll just get a book that gives us our view and we'll just preach to the choir. And you know, I hate doing that. Yes, because if I just get a book that agrees with what we already think about Matthew 24, then all we're doing is relying on our past learning to give us our present teaching, which means our present teaching is an absolute waste of time if all we're going to do is repeat what we've learned in the past. So in the present, we have to challenge what we think we know to see if we have been wrong and to try to grow in our understanding, yes? I, I, I just don't like the way the church does that. It's like, here's what we believe, so we're just going to preach what we've already preached. Well, wait a minute. You've got to be challenged. So we're looking at it from a preterist perspective, right? Okay. Now, I'm, I'm going to just jump in to where we are, and we're gonna, I'm going to read a little bit of this. They start off by saying this. Jesus begins his answer. Remember, we had a big discussion about why, how do we understand the questions? How many questions were there? We, we talked all about trying to understand the questions. Yes? Okay? Just say you remember. All right, here we go. Jesus begins his answer with a solemn warning against deception. Matthew records his answers as follows. If you look at Matthew 24, 4 through 13, they group them all together. 24, 4 through 13. You see why I put 14 down as the key, ver key verse or one of the key sections? Because 4 through 13, guess what the preterist is going to do? They group them all together and they're going to say all of it was fulfilled where? Prior to 70 A.D. Okay, does that make sense? All right. What does Jesus focus on in 4 through 13? What are some of the things he warns them about? Well, first of all, let's, don't forget this, the false Christ and deception. Okay. We have wars, rumors of war, nation against nation, famine, pestilence, earthquakes. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, persecution, right? You're going to betray one another. And then once he ends it with false prophets, and then he says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. I think it's very easy to make all of that fit in prior to 70 A.D. Right? It's, put it this way, even if, you, even, if it, even if it's not your preference, you would have to acknowledge it's possible and even plausible. Especially considering the context of the chapter, yes? All right. So, remember we, we started doing a little, well, I'm just going to go back and jump right in. All right? Jesus focuses initially on the perils post, posed by the appearance of false messiahs. Remember the individual we're looking at, James Stuart Russell, Right? Russell argues that the, de the deceptive claims of those false messiahs were fulfilled between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. 
False Christ and false prophets began to make their appearance at a very early period of the Christian era and continued to infest the land down to the very close of Jewish history. Right? They talked about in Pontius Pilate during his time, uh, AD 36, one such false Christ appeared in Samaria and deluded great multitudes. There was another during the time of Cuspius Fadus, Fadus, F-A-D-U-S, AD 45. There was another during the government of Felix, AD 53 to 60. Josephus tells us that the country was full of robbers, magicians, false prophets, false messiahs, and impostors who deluded the people with promises of great events. All right, so there's a lot of uh, argument that all of this was fulfilled, right? And we shouldn't be shocked by that, yes? Because in, even in the book of Acts, there's warning that what's getting ready to come to the church? False prophets, false teachers, right? Everybody, so, I mean, that, we, we shouldn't be shocked. Calvin agreed that a rash of false messiahs arose in the early church era, for shortly after Christ's resurrection, those arose imposters, every one of whom professed to be the Christ. That's according to Calvin. Um, as, and as the true Redeemer had not only been removed from the world, but oppressed uh, by what happened on the cross, and yet the minds of all were excited by the hope and inflamed with the desire of redemption, these men had in their power a plausible opportunity of deceiving nor can it be doubted that God permitted such things to impose on the Jews who had so basically rejected the Son. Calvin basically argued it was plausible because Jesus was gone and everybody was you know, thinking he was going to come back or looking for something or looking for the kingdom. And so it was a great time. And of course, Calvin argues God did this in some ways to impose a judgment on the Jews who had rejected him. So you didn't want the real Christ? We'll give you, the false, we'll give you false Christ. Now, you, what you can, we can get into an argument about that, but okay, you get the idea. All right, everybody okay with that? Though Calvin acknowledged that the problem of false Christ plagued the early church after the resurrection of Christ, he applied the warning to the church of all ages, not limiting it to the church of the first century. Now, that's okay. You can, I mean, the warning of false teachers is true of every age. But the specific warning is directed towards that specific group of people leading up to 70 AD. If you want to expand the application, just expand the application that false teachers are always a danger, don't make that warning as a sign for the second coming because this was a sign for 70 AD. Does that, does that make sense? Because if this is a sign for the second coming, then it's an irrelevant sign because there's been false teachers every day of every week of every month of every year since probably 33 AD. So the sign would become what? Become meaningless. I mean, you'd be like, okay. So does that make sense? Now the calamities that Jesus speaks of, including famines, pestilence, earthquakes, and wars are described as the beginning of sorrows. Immediately following this, he said that the disciples, you, would be delivered up to, the, uh, to affliction, to be hated and killed. Again, the preterist view of Russell links these calamities to events that actually took place in the interim between Christ's resurrection and Jerusalem's destruction. All right? In Alexandria, in Seleucia, in Syria, and Babylonia, there were violent t- tumults 
between the Jews and the Greeks, the Jews and the Syrians inhabiting the same cities. In the region of Calgola, great apprehensions were entertained in Judah of war with the Romans. In consequence of that tyrant's proposal to place his statue in the temple. So there was a, the, the, the emperor wanted to put his image in the temple, which created major conflict and possible war in Judah. In the region of the emperor Claudius, AD 41 to 54, there were four seasons of great scarcity. In the fourth year of his reign, the famine in Judah, Judah was so severe that the price of food became enormous and great numbers perished. Earthquakes occurred in, in each of the regions of Calgola and, and Claudius. Such calamities, the Lord gave his disciples to understand, would precede the end. But they were not in its immediate antecedents. They were the beginning of the end, but the end is not yet. Simply put, there's a lot of historical records to describe what? War, famine, Earthquakes, tribulations, and all kinds of problems, right? All happening between, really, uh, I mean, early on, between 33 and 54. Maybe even, yeah, most of them occurred probably even before 60. So, that, I mean, all of the, and again, all of those would have been majorly significant, yes? Because if you've just been given the promise, or the, the warnings in like 31, 32, even up to 33, and then you're watching these things unfold in 40 and 50 and up to 60. I mean, you know what's coming. For us, these warnings mean nothing. Right? Again, I can, I can get, I had the number. It's like 100,000 significant earthquakes from like 1980 to like 2000. Okay, well, I mean, that, that doesn't mean anything to us anymore, right? Okay, so that, all of those things. And we can talk about, I mean, Famine, pestilence, we've been hearing about that our whole lives. How many people die every day from starvation? How many people die every day because of unclean water? I mean, these things have been going on nonstop, right? Uh, Jesus describes these events as the beginning of sufferings. Now, W.F. Albright and C.S. Mann comment on this phrase, literally the beginning of birth pains. An almost technical term for the sufferings which would immediately precede a new age. This age, now listen to this, this is very important though. The age of the Messiah's reign, seen in the context of the upheavals, which surrounded the spread of the community, was certainly ushered in without much, with much suffering. Now please note, this becomes... This gets into a lot of systems of eschatology where some people believe basically Christ has been reigning and the you know, millennial kingdom has been going on for 2,000 years, which we would we disagree with. Okay? But at the same time, I do agree that all of these things happened before 70 AD. So you, you see how I, I'm going to find myself in a position where I don't agree with anybody. Okay? But I do agree that there's no way to get around. These things happened before 70 AD up to this point. There's nothing in Matthew 24 that would make me go, oh, no, this is all future. No, this, this is clearly uh, the past. But there's some language there that gets me going, okay, wait a minute. This is going in a different direction. But they go on to say, in a similar fashion, William L. Lane notes the following. To express this fact, Jesus used a phrase which became, a tech, which, which became technical in, in rabbinic literature. 
to describe the period of intense suffering preceding messianic deliverance, the birth pangs of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, the pangs of birth are a recurring image of divine judgment. Okay? Now, if you say this is a language that speaks of bad things happening before messianic deliverance, well, that's going to raise some questions. Where was the messianic deliverance in 70 AD? Well, there's some things that seem to be promised in Matthew 24, right? Well, but look at Matthew 24. Do you see anything there that seems to speak of some positive things happening there in Matthew 24? Y'all look. It's open book. Everybody look. See what you can find. Okay, that describes the coming of the Messiah. That seems to describe the coming of the, of the Son of Man, right? Is there any other verses there in Matthew 24 that seems to speak of the, the Son of Man coming? Verse 30, what does it say? All right, that seems to re- describe the second coming of Christ. Now, why is this significant? Well, they're trying to say that all of these things that are happening are the judgments that precede the great messianic deliverance. What does a preterist believe about all of those verses? They already happened. All right. So they're going to say somehow there was a messianic deliverance somehow in all of this. Like, how do we understand that? Or is that where they're going to go? Is that where Russell go, is going to go in his argumentation? We'll have to see, right? But I want you, when you see some of that language, you're going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where, where are they going here? Where are they going here, right? They are mentioned in the context of his answer to his disciples' question concerning when Jesus' prophecies would be fulfilled. Russell argues correctly that these are precursors of fulfillment and things that will happen before Jesus' words are fulfilled. If this prophecy included the prediction of Jerusalem's destruction, then the natural meaning of the words is that these things must take place before Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. Perhaps the most crucial question regarding Jesus' words is this. What does Jesus mean by the end? The end of what? Is Jesus speaking the end of the temple? Or the end of the world, or the end of the age? Is he speaking of the end of one of these things, some of these things, or all of these things incorporated in this prophecy? So when Jesus talks about the end, what end is he referring to? Now, some immediately believe that it's the end of what? The world, and puts it a future. If it's the end of the age then it would be the end of the Jewish age, which would have ended in 70 AD. So again, now it comes to a lot of speculation in how to understand that term. 
Oh, yeah, and even in different translations gives us some challenges there as well, okay? So, that brings us to where? So, I think we can agree, I know that's a lot of words, but verses uh, 4 through 13, what can we safely say from the historical record? They did happen. Right, they did. Uh, and so, we could argue that they've been fulfilled. So, that brings us to what verse? 14. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Okay. Are you ready? Now, I've got, someone sent me their homework, and they, they looked up every commentary they could find on verse 14, and I, so I, I have it all, they wrote it all out. And uh, so, we can look, we, 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 may, we may do a, a, an experiment, but we'll, we'll just see how far we can get with this, all right? So, Matthew then reports more of the discourse, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then then the end will come. Jesus cites another phenomenon that must take place before the end comes. Now, what's the big question right there? Yeah, what end is he referring to again? Right, what end is he referring to? Now, in context, what end would make the most sense? No, in the context. The temple. The end of the temple. Y'all disagree? Okay. All right, I'm saying, but, well, the, but I'm saying I, if we're just very literal, it would be the end of the temple. Now, if you want to say that temple represents the end of the Jewish age, now that, that's, that's taking what happens and then trying to interpret it. I'm just saying from a purely contextual basis, the setting would be the end will come, will be the destruction of the temple, right? Correct? And it doesn't, I mean, that's the whole context, yes? There's no way to get around the context, okay? Everybody, does that make sense? So, according to this, this has to happen before the end of the temple. What has to happen? The gospel of the kingdom has to be preached. All right. In fact, let's do this. 2414, let's do this. Uh, if you have uh, internet, just type in and Google Matthew 2414. Okay, because I, th- I think this is important that we need to look at here really quick, right? If I can get it to work. Okay, here we go. I'm going to type in Matthew 2414. I'm going to pull uh, BibleHub.com. Here it is. And I'm going to read it in every translation. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. The ESV and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Berean study and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. Berean literal Bible. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in the whole earth. Now let's stop right here. Let's stop right here. All right, when you read that, all right, what, what's your understanding of that? Do you read that as every city, every town, every village, every county, every country? Mm-hmm. 
All right. So some are saying every city, every town, every country, every, every place. Okay. Okay. So maybe not every city. So we have someone saying not every city. Are you sticking with every city? Okay, every nation. Okay, so Stacy is saying at least in, it has to be present in every city. Okay, okay, every area. Okay, well we got it. We got it. We got to live. We got to drive. We got to. We got to make a determination of what we think is required to fulfill this verse. Okay, so I, I want your thoughts, and just I, I look. You should just already know whatever you say. There's going to be 500 commentaries going to disagree with you. So, you, you, I mean, so I don't want you to think this is not easy. Okay. okay. I, I'm just. We just have to. I, everyone's got to make a determination what they think is required to fulfill this verse. I mean, everyone has to have an opinion. You've all read the Bible. You hopefully you did something with the verse. Every person should hear the gospel, all right? So Bobby is taking it now all the way to every person has to hear it, okay? All right, that's, that's, taking it, that's taking it far, 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 okay? All right, all right, do what? Okay, I mean, he's going to every person, okay? All right, all right, anybody else? So Bobby's down to every person, All the areas. What do you? How do you define an area? Well, you got to define it because we got to determine. Okay. All right. So Stacy's not going to participate. Okay. That's helpful. Okay. I, I wish I could do that. Hey, I I don't have to really define what the verse means, but I I I, I wish I could do that. Okay. No answers. Okay. 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 No. I no. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give up is what I'm going to do, okay? okay. Wait. I'm just going to do the same thing. Well, I don't know either, so it doesn't matter, okay? It's got to matter because it says it has to happen before the end comes, yes? Now, what, what, where does that lead, leave us? What, what did y'all say the end was? What did y'all say the end was? Okay, well, if it's the temple, then everyone, if you go with every person, every single person had to hear the gospel before the temple was destroyed. If you go with, it's the temple, then every, as Stacy said, every area, whatever that means, has to hear the gospel. And Sarah went with, I don't know, so it, I don't know what that even means, and Stephen left. Okay, all right, okay. Okay, all right. So, so Bobby is saying the end there is not the temple. I didn't say it was. Okay. Okay, it's not convinced of it. <laughs> all right. So, the end is possibly not the end of the temple, just the end of the temple. All right? So, all right, let's see, let's see what Russell does. Let's see what Russell does. Everybody ready? Okay. Okay. Well, well let's see what they have to say. Jesus cites another phenomenon that must take place before the end comes. The gospel will be preached in all the world. 
This sign is widely regarded today as being unfulfilled as there remain remote tribes and people who've not yet heard the gospel. Russell argues, however, that this precursor to the end was already accomplished in apostolic times. One other sign was to proceed and usher in the consummation, writes Russell. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We have already adverted or alluded to the fulfillment of this prediction within the apostolic age. We have the authority of St. Paul for such a universal diffusion of the gospel in his days as to to verify the saying of our Lord. Right? They're saying Paul already said this was fulfilled. Right? Everybody ready to see where? All right. Go to Colossians and you can tell me what you think. All right, everybody ready? Colossians 1, everybody look in verse 6. He's going to give us two verses, not a lot. Colossians 1, 6, what do we have? They don't quote it in the book, which is always a telling sign. Colossians 1, 6, what does it say? Everybody say it out loud. The gospel has come to you as in all the world. Everybody see that? How does the NIV say it? All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among All over the world. Look at verse 23. Well, I... We, we, we can try to draw all the distinctions we want. The key is, is that sufficient evidence to show? Wait, well, hang on. Now, before we do anything, what do we need to do? Someone should have raised their hand immediately. What should be the very next question? What should be, you should have stopped me before we even read it. When? Okay, so everybody look up the dating for Colossians. Everybody said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. When was this written? That has to be written when? When does it have to be written? Before 70 AD. All right, so grab. Okay, well, we got to verify every source. Okay, so grab everything you got, everything that we have here. Okay, study, use anything, use anything you have. This is every, we want to see if we've got absolute agreement on this. Okay, because it doesn't matter if this is after, right? Does everybody understand that? Okay. I have 53 to 61. 60 to 61. Okay. Around 60. Okay. We don't have anything that's saying after 70. Every source that we just looked at. Those were a bunch of different sources we just went after. I think that was four different sources I think we just looked at. Okay. So that means... If, if what Paul is saying, does that, does that fulfill it? Now, uh, we also look at verse 23 of Colossians 1. We looked at verse 6. Uh-huh. 
No, okay, well, all right. Okay, go ahead with that. Okay, every creature, okay, that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. See Colossians 1.23? Okay, so just because someone asked a question uh, online, so I just want to make sure everybody understands, just in case there's any confusion. In Matthew 24, especially if people didn't listen uh, to the last time, in Matthew 24.3, and he said upon Mount Olives, and when the disciples come to him saying, tell us what shall these things be, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. The end of the world there, we, we don't know, that we don't know how they're asking that question. In their minds, the destruction of the temple is the end of the world. So there's the idea that they have a false assumption and asking the question, not only that, the other Gospels do not include that phrase, the end of the world. So there's lots of dispute on exactly how we understand that. We, we don't think there's any way in their minds that the disciples have enough of an eschatology to go, Jesus, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When are you going to return? And when is the end of the world? They don't have an eschatology. They're just hearing, wait, the temple's going to be destroyed? That's got to be the end. There's almost a false assumption in their thing. Jesus doesn't try to correct that. He just says, look, you want to know when the temple's going to be destroyed? Here's the signs. That's what he's clearly and ultimately referring to. Clearly. Clearly. I mean, it's, I mean there's just no way to get around it. They're asking, he, what's the prediction? Does Jesus predict the end of the world? And his prediction in Matthew 24, does Jesus predict the end of the world? No, what does he predict? No, what, he predicts the destruction of the temple, right? What does he say? What's his exact prediction? Everybody go back to Matthew 24. If we don't get this down, we're going to have to start all over. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 I just want to make sure we've got to have this down. What is his exact prediction? What does not, and he's pointing to the buildings, right? And there should not be one stone left. He doesn't say anything about the end of the world. He makes no prediction about the end of the world. He doesn't make it a prediction about his coming. Okay? Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. We don't interpret this based off the confused questions of the disciples. We interpret this based off the words of the incarnate Son of God. Right? If I, if I interpret Scripture based off some of the questions you guys ask, we're finished. But then in verse 6, he says the end is not yet. Yeah, the end is not yet of what? Well, I would say of the world. No, verse 6 He's referring to what? He's giving just a few signs. And the end is not yet when you see those signs. Those signs happened before 50 AD. When you see those signs, the end is not yet. It's going to be almost another 20 years before 70 AD. All right? Does that make sense? Right? I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be dogmatic on this. Everything before, verse thir- everything before verse 14 happens before 70 AD. There's no way to get around that. They all happen before 70 AD. Okay? Now, verse 14, the argument is it didn't happen before 70 AD. Right? However, 
Colossians uses language that would seem to match the language used in verse 14. Does that make sense? Now, I can go to all kinds of other commentaries that I think even offer other scriptures that would say this this is fulfilled in in verse uh, before 70 AD. All right? They go on to say this. All right? Now, let me back this up. We have the authority of St. Paul for such a universal diffusion of the gospel in his days as to verify the saying of the Lord. Now, let me make it very clear. I am not defining what Paul means by world or by what he means by every creature. I'm not here to get into a discussion like, well, so what did Paul mean? Like, all the world that they knew, every creature meaning someone from every race. I'm not here, I don't have, I'm not, I, I can't try to, we could spend all day trying to argue that. The question is, the language Paul uses in Colossians, is it, is it consistent with what Jesus predicts in Matthew 24, 14? That's the question everyone needs to a- answer. The language used in Colossians 1.6 and Colossians 1.23, is it consistent with the prediction Jesus makes in 24.14? What do we think? Right? Because okay. What does he say in 6? He, he specifically speaks of what? Colossians 1.6. The truth of the gospel. Right. He's speaking of the gospel. So there's no question he's referring to the gospel. Yes? All right. 23, what is he referring to? This is the gospel that you heard. Proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Okay. 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 Well, it may be every prayer. I don't know. I don't know how to interpret that. I don't have to worry about interpreting it. What I have to worry about is understanding that it's consistent with the promise that Jesus made. Yes? And if it's true, Paul is saying it was fulfilled by when? 60 AD. All right? Okay. All right. Does that make sense? But for this explicit testimony from an apostle, it would have been impossible to persuade some expositors that our Lord's word had been in any sense fulfilled previous to the destruction of the temple. In other words, they're saying without Paul's words, you wouldn't be able to convince anyone that it was fulfilled. So you either have to argue Paul was wrong, or, which would be a major problem, or... That Paul didn't mean what he seemed to say, or that Paul doesn't say what it appears that he's saying, which all becomes majorly problematic. All right, does that make sense? All right, we, I mean, we could try to explain away Paul's words. I could probably go to other sections where we would have the same thing, but the passage in question reads as follows The gospel has come to you. And, and they're, they're getting ready to, to, to quote those sections. I didn't think they had it quoted here, but they do have it quoted. They just don't, the way it's written seems not to. The gospel has come to you as it has also in the world and bring it forth fruit as it also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. If you indeed continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Russell links this statement with Jesus' earlier prediction. Here it may be proper to call to mind the note of time given on a previous occasion to the disciples as an indicative of our Lord's coming. Verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Look at Matthew 10, uh, 23. Matthew 10, 23. All right, look at Matthew 10, 23. All right, does everybody see it? All right, so uh, re, uh, from the King James, how does it read in the King James? Right. You have you have you have not gone over the cities of Israel to the Son of Man become. Well, what what in the world is that referring to? Right? How's the NIV states it? When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you that the truth that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. <laughs> okay. What in the world is that referring to? Okay. Now, this just. I'm just going to play, I'm not, uh, not devil's advocate so much. That's Matthew 10, 23, right? Okay, skim 23. Does anything else happen in chapter 23? Of significance. Anything else happen in 23? Matthew 10, 23. Start, or Matthew 10, I should say. And Matthew 10, I'm sorry. Does anything else happen in Matthew 10 after verse 23? How many verses are in 23, uh, chapter 10? 42. Between 23 and 42, does anything else significant happen? Instructions for the disciples who are going to be sent out, right? All right? And so before they make it through the cities of Israel, the Son of Man's going to return. What in the world's going on? What happens in chapter 11? Anything significant in chapter 11? All right, so we don't have any easy answer here, do we? Right? Nothing that jumps out and go, oh, that's what he's referring to. Correct? Okay, because what could you possibly be looking for as a possible solution here? Before you go through the cities of Israel, the Son of Man is going to come. He does foretell judgment, okay. All right. What, what could you possibly be looking for? What do you think is a possible way to get out of this verse? I mean, come on, somebody's had to figure this out. I mean, this one is one of those verses that the first time you read it, you should have been like, wait, what in the world's going on here? This should have just stopped your entire Bible reading program immediately and just said, I don't understand. What do you think? What's a possible solution? Come on, thinking caps, thinking caps. Some would say the transfiguration, because the transfiguration is in a sense a a showing of how Jesus is going to come in his glorified state. That's what some people try to look to as a possible solution. I'm not saying it's workable. I'm not even saying it's feasible. But because when does the transfiguration occur? Matthew 10, 23 is the verse. Where does the transfiguration occur? 
No, no, the transfiguration doesn't occur. That's the ascension in Acts. Where does the transfiguration occur? Okay, someone's just going to look it up. Chapter 16, that's a long ways away. That's a long ways away. So is that helpful? That's helpful? You think? That's a lot of chapters. That's, ten, that's chapter 10, and it doesn't happen until chapter 16. So we'd have to figure out what's the time gap between that. Could be a short amount of time. Could be. But that's a lot. I think a lot's going to happen. Is, it, is the is Gospel of Matthew in any kind of chronological order? Is the transfiguration out of chronological order? We could ask a lot of questions. All right, this is what Russell says. Okay, everybody ready? Here we go. Here, it may be proper to call the mind the note of time given on a previous occasion to the disciples as indicative of our Lord's coming. Then he quotes, Verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Matthew 10, 23. Comparing this declaration with the prediction before us in Matthew 24, 14, we may see the perfect consistency of the two statements. In the one case, it is the evangelization of the land of Israel. In the other, the evangelization of the Roman Empire that is referred to as the precursor. Both statements are true. The wide diffusion of the gospel, both in the land of Israel and throughout the Roman Empire, is sufficient to justify the prediction of our Lord. Now, when they say the coming, what then are they, what is Russell referring to? What does Matthew 10, 23 say? All right, what is he referring to the Son of Man coming? What is, he, what is he referring to? What is Russell referring to? The Son of Man coming. No, no, no. 70 AD, 70 AD, 70 AD. That, look, anytime we're dealing with preterism, what's always the correct answer? When did Jesus come back? It, it doesn't matter. 70 AD. Yeah, that's going to be their answer. Right? So in other words, what, what's the two signs? The gospel is going to make it through all the cities of Israel and the gospel is going to make it to the world and those two things, Jesus will come. When did he come? 70 AD. That's their answer. All right? Now, you see the problem. You say, well, I, I disagree. Well, disagree. Did they get the gospel across Israel? Paul says they get the gospel where? Did Jesus come back? Right, I'm saying, in our minds, did Jesus come back? No. Okay, so then it's up to us to figure out then how those verses make sense. Does that, do you see the issue here, okay? Like for the preterists, they're like, you can say, well, the preterists, you're just ridiculous. And they're like, oh, really? Did Jesus come back? 
And you're going to be like, well, no. Did the gospel get preached over the cities of Israel? Did it get sent around the world? The problem is yours, not theirs. <laughs> okay. like, sometimes when we're dealing with theology, we have to acknowledge when the problem is ours, and we've got to be more than willing to put out when the problem is theirs. In this particular case, the problem is ours. We've just got to admit that. Hey, I think the preterist has got plenty of problems. But in this particular case, they have the advantage. That's fine. Yeah, in those verses, we, we got an issue here. Though Russell links the coming of the Son of Man, uh, uh, other scholars, such as Albright and Mann, see it as being fulfilled with the resurrection of Christ, divorcing it from the second coming, or the, the, the second coming. All right? So, for some, they say that the coming here is referring to the resurrection. But that would only be Matthew 10.23. In other words, Matthew 10.23 was fulfilled in the resurrection. Matthew 24.14 was fulfilled before 70 AD. Right? Does that make sense? Right? Now, the resurrection does make a little bit of sense. Right? In a sense, he returns to what? He returns to... No, no. For Matthew... Now, for all over Israel, yeah, now, did they do so? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a good point. Did they make it through all the cities of Israel before Jesus' resurrection? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, yeah. How many, how many cities of quote-unquote Israel existed at that time? They were under Roman control, so what would be considered a city of Israel? So you could get into a lot of questions there, all right? So, Right, if it's only Jerusalem, okay, right, right. I mean, like, how do you see that? So there, there, that may be that may be doable. All right, okay. Now, what time is it? Oh man, you have got to be kidding me! All right, okay. So let's do this. All right, we're gonna have to. You know what's next, right? What's next? The abomination of desolation. All right. Clearly, if I start the abomination of desolation, it's going to feel like the abomination of desolation by the time we're done at 2 in the morning. Okay, so we can't do that. All right, so let's do this. Thinking caps on. Everybody ready? All right, thinking caps on. All right. Just so that there's no confusion, in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 4, when the disciples ask the question, hey, when are things going to happen? What is the sign of your coming? What is the end of the world? They don't determine how to interpret the chapter. It's really weird that people grab onto their, que- their question as the hermeneutical key. Their question cannot be the hermeneutical key because we, we know that they're... Look, does, do the disciples show they're confused constantly? Con- throughout the entire gospel. Did they understand his death? Did they understand his resurrection? They didn't understand anything. So you can't expect that they were like, okay, according to my brilliant understanding of eschatology, I need to know when is the end of the world. Like they, they're just like, wait a minute, the temple's going to be destroyed? First in their minds, they clearly think it's something that's got to be future because they can't even imagine it coming down, 
right? Clearly, they're connecting that probably with the end of the world. That's, to me, the best way of understanding. There's a lot of false assumptions in their question. But the key is, forget them. What is the prediction by the eternal Son of God in that passage? The temple's coming down. He doesn't say anything about the end of the world. Right? Amen? Like, that's, that's non-negotiable. Jesus says, these buildings are going to come down. That's what he's referring to. That happened in 70 AD. The world, we're in 2022. The world didn't end in 70 AD. Jesus does not make a prediction about the end of the world there, okay? Does that make sense? Like, that's your hermeneutical clue. What is the prediction that Jesus makes? That that temple that was standing was going to be destroyed when? In 70 AD, and we know when it was going to be destroyed because it's happened. We can read about it, right? We can read the writings of Josephus. Just read any history book. Go to Jerusalem. You've been to Jerusalem? The temple's not there, okay? We know it was destroyed, okay? Like, there's no mystery here, right? This is the one, this is the easiest thing in the world to figure out. That temple was destroyed. We know the date. We know who was responsible, right? Like, there's so many things in the Bible we don't have a clue. This is the easiest. So, when Jesus starts giving signs... Obviously, the first thing we need to look at are do those signs point to what? To what Jesus predicted. We always want to look to the signs to something that Jesus didn't predict. Okay, isn't that weird? Okay, hey, no, no, that's pointing to something else. Well, then what in the world is Jesus telling us that when he didn't predict it? Yes? So we look for that first and foremost. Does that make sense? Now, we are in complete agreement, I think, that verses 4 to 13, clearly all of those things happened before 70 AD. Most of them happened before 50 AD, clearly before 60 AD. All right? That, there's too many historical documents that show that. All right? So all of that points to 70 AD. Agreed? 14 was our initial like, ah, I'm not so sure. Now, I don't know how it played. I don't know how it, look, I want to make this very clear. I have no clue exactly how it played out. I don't have any clue exactly how to understand it. I just know that Paul, writing in 60 AD, testifies under apostolic authority and inspired scripture that the gospel had gone into all the world and been preached to every creature. You say, how is that possible? Have no clue. I mean, we've looked at the maps of Paul's missionary journeys and it it seems implausible to me. But Paul said it. So either I have to sit there and play all kinds of games saying, well, Paul didn't really mean that. Well, then... Okay, well, obviously, right. 
But I'm just saying that, that I, I can understand anyone's reluctance to say that was fulfilled. I can understand the reluctance. I don't want to say that it was fulfilled. Because I love verse 14 being the transition. Because then it helps me with all the difficulties coming up. But I don't think 14 can be the transition. Because Paul's words. Paul, Paul messes this up right here. And remember, what's our job? It's not to get nervous because, well, all that prophecy that I've learned in the past, it says something different. It's okay. Everything, I've learned so many different systems of prophecy, I can't keep track of all of them. Right? You know what? I don't care right now if it goes against the one I learned at this point or the one I learned. I don't care. All we have to do is what does the text say? Jesus says that the gospel has to go into all the world before the end comes. Now, we know this, that if that end is referring to 70 AD, which would make the most sense in that context, and we do know the gospel was preached into all the world, then we, we have, this is probably pointing to something that occurred before 70 AD, and we don't have a problem with that. So what do we have to look for? Is there going to be a transition? And what's the next one? The abominations of desolation. Does this refer to what happened in 70 A.D.? Now, we do know that before A.D., I think it's 123, 137, Josephus writes about it. One something A.D., someone comes in, I think they kill a pig on the altar and desecrate the altar. And some say that's the abomination of desolation. But that cannot be referring to what Jesus is pointing to because he's pointing to something Future, not something that happened in 100-something A.D. I have the date. It's in Josephus' writings. Um, I, I have it. Let's see. Someone, uh, let me see. Maybe I still have it here. Let me see. Let me go if I can find it. Um, let me see if I can locate it. 167 B.C. Yeah. Uh, Antiochus, uh, had, uh, and what happened in the temple and no sacrifice, there was no sacrificial system for 3.5 years in 167 BC, all right? So I can't remember, I think uh, it's found in the War of the Jews by uh, Josephus, and you can read about it. And I think he sacrificed a pig on the altar. I'd have to go back and 100% uh, figure it all out. But that's not what Jesus is referring to, because that happened in BC, right? So I'm just saying, we can't, we can't point it to that. So then it has to be something future. So then what we, we have to ask ourselves. When Titus came in to destroy Jerusalem, right, does that equal the abomination of desolation that's mentioned in Daniel? Now, some people say well, Daniel would point to what happened in around 160, 167 B.C. The only problem with that is Jesus does what with that? He applies Daniel to what? To what he's predicting. So, does that refer to what happened in 70 AD? In context, you want to say what? In context, you want to say yes, okay? You, you, you want to say yes, because that, that just resolves all the problems with the chapter, right? Remember, all these things have to happen for that generation. You want to just be done with all of the problems. But if it didn't happen, then this would be what? 15 would be our transition, where everything before points to 70 AD and 15 
points to something future. If it points to something future, what is required for it to be fulfilled? If 15 is pointing to the future, what would be required for it to be fulfilled? A new temple, thank you. All right, because what does verse 15 say? There you go. So, it would require a new temple. All right? Does that make sense? Yes? So, then we would have to say everything after 15 would point to, if we're going to put it in some kind of chronological order, everything would have to be pointing to the future from 15 forward. Now, the question is, when Titus came in, what did he do? That's why I gave everyone the homework to read Josephus' description of exactly what happened. Did you see anything that described what Titus did? Oh, okay. No, no that may be then. We, do, we, do we have a definitive answer? I remember I like to play devil's advocate here. Okay, right? All the people that were killed, they got tired killing people. Right, yeah, right. Okay. So we, if Josephus doesn't give us the answer, who does? We'll have to look it up there. All right, we'll have to stop. All right, any questions? So right now, we, can, we, can we say that 14 probably was fulfilled? Seems likely. So 15 is the next possible, mm, what do we do with 15? What do we do with 15? I don't know what we do with 15. If I can make it future, great, but then I've got to make sure that everything after it is clearly future too. Because if anything after it goes before 70 AD, then the whole chronological order falls completely and utterly apart again. Does that make sense? But if 15 is the transition, then whew, we're, in good, we're in good shape. All right? Everybody good? Everybody good? All right? No? <laughs> Stacy doesn't look like she's okay. Okay. Okay, good. Someone did say, yes, he did sacrifice a pig. I knew he sacrificed a pig. Yeah, he came and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Okay, yeah. I, 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 no, not Titus. Uh, Antiochus. Oh, do I? Yeah, I think it's Epiphanes, but Antiochus is, is, the, is the first name. Okay, but yeah, that's one. I keep saying it's number. So it's one something BC. All right. Yeah, 167. All right. So, uh, yeah, but I, I wish that would be uh, you know, that would be, that's a great fulfillment. He comes in, he sacrifices and all. I mean, that's a great fulfillment, but it's not what Jesus is referring to because Jesus is, it's, he's, way, it's, he's way after that. Does that make sense? Okay, so, all right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Some difficult stuff, complicated stuff. Lord, I just pray that we, we stay committed to trying to figure this out and we set aside all of our desire for our system. It, we got to lay aside everything about us and just ask ourselves, what does the text say? Lord, we ask you to be uh, with the Gusslers and some uh, situations developing there that they need prayer for. We ask that you be with them, bring peace, uh, bring resolution, uh, bring, bring this to uh, hopefully a quick end where there is uh, no difficulties and problems, but even in the midst of the problems, give them some sense of peace and comfort. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...